0: I'm Danai Avgari. I'm Mariana Vieira, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. We have a very interesting set of interviews for you today around the EU-Turkish relationship, their border dynamics, and migration governance. But before we get into that, it is my great pleasure to introduce you or welcome into the studio my co-host for this episode, Danai Avgeri, who is a fellow in the Leadership Academy.
1: Hi, Mariana. I'm so excited to be joining you today. I must admit I have been a fan of Undercurrents Podcasts for a long time. Well, it is great to hear that. We're very
0: flattered and I'll be sure to pass the positive feedback along to to my fellow co-hosts.
1: Danai, what is it that you do at Chatham House at the moment? So I joined Chatham House directly after I finished my PhD on Governing Migration and Rebordering Europe, Space, Time and Law in Greece Refugee Crisis was the title of my PhD thesis. But what I'm doing here is working with the global health team around the intersection of migration policy and global health responses to COVID-19. So I'm researching access to healthcare for migrants and refugees that sounds very interesting, not
0: only interesting and timely and probably goes a long way to explain why you're here today.
1: But yes, I think that's enough about me. Uh, let's go back to the episode. Who did you talk to? So for the first interview, I spoke to Aysen Stubiji, who is an assistant
0: professor at the Koç University in Istanbul, Turkey. We had a very interesting conversation because Professor Stubiji focuses on her research into the dynamics of power and inequality when it comes to international mobility, specifically dynamics of migration and integration and social cohesion. All of this to say that I was able to pick her brain on Turkey's role in international migration governance. She had this very interesting concept of the way that she described Turkey as this transit country and the geopolitical implications of this. So we talked about EU-Turkish migration, the notion of migration diplomacy, which comes up quite a bit in her research, and the links to the 2016 EU-Turkey statement slash deal. Terminology is still very much up in the air uh, for that one. Then we shifted the conversation towards Turkish domestic politics, and we talked about the impact of the current economic crisis and the changing international landscape in terms of how Turkish politics and rhetoric and discourse sees migrants as a perceived threat and lastly we explored uh, lessons from the deal and future directions in the relationships between Turkey EU and the border states such as Greece but I know it's not the only interview in the episode so then I who did you talk to and what did you talk about
1: so my interview actually is very complimentary to yours because it speaks about the other side of the border. I spoke to Stephanos Levidis, who oversees the work on borders and migration at Forensic Architecture. Forensic Architecture is a research agency based at Goldsmiths, University of London, investigating state and corporate violence, human rights violations and environmental destructions all over the world. But what really distinguishes their research is that they deploy and combine cutting-edge techniques such as 3D modeling, audiovisual materials, spatial analysis, and situated testimonies by survivors to reconstruct and analyze violent events. So these are the topics I touched on with Stefanos today. We discussed how this methodology is deployed to explore the Turkey border, and how cross-state antagonisms manifest at the borders, how they impact migrants and refugees. We delved more deeply in the practice of pushbacks, both at the land and the maritime border between Greece and Turkey, and the weaponization of the natural environment to repel migrants. So we finally discussed about how this specific methodology that they deploy also protects and supports the agencies of migrants and refugees to tell their own stories and to seek accountability for violence affected upon them. Well, that
0: sounds fascinating and it sounds like there's a lot to unpack there. So shall we have a listen?
1: Definitely. Let's go.
0: Let's start with the role of Turkey in international migration governance, given its geopolitical position. How has this role shifted historically?
2: Yes, uh, let us start with that to really understand what's happening um, today. So Turkey is geographically situated in the middle of three continents, Asia, Africa and, and Europe. And then historically, I think it's been, you know, one of the major migratory routes. But also like uh, when we think about second half of the 20th century onwards, we see Turkey mainly as a country which is sending out a lot of labor migrants, mainly to Europe. Uh, This role as a sort of labor frontier for European countries has changed in the last few decades So first, especially after the 80s, what we have witnessed was the Iranian revolution, um, the war in Afghanistan, and then followed by in later decades, war in Iraq and other places, the fall of the Soviet Union. So what we have seen that the Turkey's role as ascending uh, state has changed, and then it has become more of a transit place. First, hundreds of thousands of Iranians fleeing the regime change. And then later joined by other groups, Afghans, Iraqis, but also like when we see increasing restrictions on mobility, right, for instance, for African countries, then also like, you know, a lot of Africans also came to Turkey in the 90s and onwards to pass to Europe. So what we see is that Turkey has become a transit country, right? And it was one of the first countries to be called as such. And then meanwhile, but increasingly so later on, we also see Turkey's economy with the sort of the opening up of the economy in the 80s and the 90s, it's, it has also started to host increasing number of immigrants coming in, right, for, for labor purposes, for other purposes. Then it has also become an immigration country, right? This is how uh, things have changed, and of course, the Syrian conflict was another major shift in the role of Turkey and mig- uh, migration governance, where we see the uh, the open border policy by the government. It was the government pursued an open border policy uh, from 2011 on, but then this open border policy had this expectation that Syrian refugees will enter through the border and then stay in camps for a while, not more than six months, if not, you know, one year, and then will return back to Syria because the conflict will be over very rapidly. That was the pronounced, but sometimes not so much pronounced expectation. But it didn't happen that way. So currently, Syrians are all over Turkey. Very, very minority of them are actually in the camps. And they are in urban sites in different cities. And of course, they are concentrated in some cities much more so than the others, which is, again, another uh, source of public discussion that we are having today. And as of 2015, then Turkey has become the major recipient of refugees in the world. So the country, all of a sudden, you know, in the course of a few years has become the top, you know, refugee recipient country. Uh, which also changed the way things uh, are governed within Turkey, right regarding the uh, asylum flow, asylum flows and reception of asylum seekers, and plus, Turkey-EU relations have become much more centred around migration issues.
0: That is so interesting. The the concept of a transit country, and uh, I think it gives great context to something that you discuss in your research. This idea of uh, migration diplomacy. So it sounds like it's in. Very central to Turkish politics and Turkish EU relations. can you tell us a bit more about how you deploy migration diplomacy in your in your work and how does it differ from other notions of externalization or Europeanization?
2: Of course, they're not totally different or unrelated to one another, I would say, but migration diplomacy doesn't need to be necessarily related to externalization, right Migration diplomacy means that migration becomes uh, an issue of foreign policy an issue of uh, international relations and a tool through which countries, I would say, of different power dynamics can negotiate other things through mobility of people. It can be mobility of their own citizens and think about the case of other countries like Egypt and other countries are also using uh, migration diplomacy, but mainly to have a say over the diaspora, right, of immigrants abroad, but also the the, the sort of the potential migrants from, from their own countries but the way we are using it is mainly about the, the transit mobility of third country nationals. And this has become really crystallized after the Syrian conflict, and particularly so after the Turkey-EU statement of 2016, where we see transit migration, or let's say the mobility of potential asylum seekers, as a negotiation tool between the EU and Turkey. And that you just mentioned the EU-Turkey statement in 2016,
0: and I think it's so relevant to some of the points that you're raising. Could you please elaborate on what the statement entailed?
2: It was really a statement. We might also call it as an agreement, but not necessarily a sort of, a, I would say, a legal document that the international lawyers will qualify as as an agreement. And it was a product of months of negotiation between Turkey and then EU. And back then, Angela Merkel of Germany was taking the lead, right, in this negotiation. And it was, of course, between EU and Turkey, but it was also quite bilateral in the sense that the Turkish prime minister back then and then German prime minister back then, Angela Merkel, would negotiate one by one. That's why it's a kind of very good example of migration diplomacy, because it was really about negotiating how we can curb irregular, you know, border crossings through Turkey and mainly to the to Greece and to Greek islands, but also through the land route, but also how we can chip in other standing issues into these negotiations. The main uh, aspects of the agreement that came out, the statement that came out was that the return of people who are crossed to the Greek islands, right? Then Turkey will actually accept them, readmit them. And then uh, the second one was the funding that will come from the EU budget into Turkey that will be used for the integration and also like uh, integration of, of refugees in Turkey, but also like their livelihoods, right? To contribute to their livelihood. And that was a second thing. Another thing was this one-to-one scheme, so-called, which is related to returns, which means that for each person returned from the islands uh, into Turkey, European countries commit to resettle another person from Turkey to Europe. So that was sort of the part of the statement related to all like refugee um, crisis that it was called back then. But there were some other elements to it, which also makes it a kind of a great example of migration diplomacy. For instance, one of the promises that was made to Turkey was that If this agreement, you know, works well concurrently at the same time, it's also a great way to refresh relations regarding Turkey accession process. So we will re-energize accession talks. That was the, uh, I think, uh, the clause that was used by the uh, authorities back then. And then it will also entail talks regarding like the renewal of the customs union between Turkey and Europe, and then also opening of the talks regarding the visa liberalization for Turkish nationals. So what makes it interesting as a a form of uh, migration diplomacy is that here, the mobility of Turkish nationals is tied to the immobility of asylum seekers. So if Turkey succeed in immobilizing asylum flows into the EU, then EU in return promises to open the way for free mobility for Turkish nations, which makes it, of course, a great example of migration uh, diplomacy, which is, of course, we might as well argue not specific to Turkey. And different countries had similar agreements. For instance, Ukraine now, a lot of people from Ukraine can move to Europe thanks to this visa, li- you know, liberalization talks that happened some time ago. And it was also very much tied to externalization. If we need to take this terminology in in our discussion, because it was also very much tied to readmission agreement, right? And then these countries, Georgia, Ukraine, they signed a readmission agreement with the EU, and in return, they succeeded in also negotiating visa-free travel for their own nationals. So it is not specific to Turkey, but perhaps what was specific to Turkey in that case is that Turkey back in time and still is on paper, was a candidate country, right? But it was not treated as such. If we could keep to this EU-Turkey, I'll call it a deal for now. You mentioned some of the
0: implications, but I was wondering also, what, what does it say about the EU-Turkey interdependency on migration governance?
2: Right. I mean, it's also interesting where, uh, when the deal you know comes in, uh, in this particular period in Turkey-EU relations... And also there is a, a history of this uh, close collaboration on migration. It's not like all of a sudden there is this deal that Turkey-EU started to collaborate, you know. There is this whole background to it. And then if not before, we can trace it back to early 2000s. Again, like with these accession talks, Turkey was modernizing its asylum and, and migration law. And then the funny thing is that The country did have a legal framework, but didn't have a sort of a comprehensive law, right, on migration and asylum. And it it was only introduced back in 2013 with this law on foreigners and international protection, with this new law in Turkey, which was unprecedented. And the law itself, the, the whole preparation of the law was a kind of part of the EU accession project. So the collaboration had already started in that sense. European countries, either bilaterally or the EU itself, was supporting Turkey. Like there was administrative support that was provided, financial support that was provided, and then the trainings that were provided. And the, it was all about how Turkey can have its own migration governance. So one aspect of it was about the borders, right? How Turkey can have this integrated border management system, how then the, the coast Guard, which is the main responsibility uh, for protecting the, the sea borders in Turkey, can be well-equipped, you know, to control the borders. How they can be well-trained to respect, for instance, like human rights of those apprehended at the border and all different sorts of tools that were already used, right, before the Syrians even. And then when it comes to, of course, the legal framework, Yeah, it was a kind of part of the EU project. Like At some point, Turkey committed with its national action plan to even lift the geographical uh, limitation, to reform its asylum policy. And all these things was part of the EU-Turkey accession talks. In other words, this dependency was already there, right? It was not uh, because of a particular development in the region. I think from early on, migration was seen as something that where. European countries, the EU, and Turkey will closely collaborate anyway. Absolutely. You were talking about this, uh, how the deal affected
0: Turkey's own own border and their migration framework. But I was also thinking about how has it
2: affected the lives of, of migrants and refugees? I mean, the deal has been signed off like 2016, right? It's been like six years and a lot happened since then. So many things actually have had a huge impact on migrants' lives. And when we conducted this study, I think it was back in 2019, what we have seen is that the deal does not necessarily curb, for instance, aspirations to move on, right? A lot of people who would like to go on, you know, try their luck while crossing to, to, to a Greek island, they will do it anyway, right? And a lot of migrants coming in, like the recent arrivals, Yeah, they don't necessarily come to Turkey with the intention of staying in Turkey. Those people will just pass on anyway. So at that level, my impression was that, yeah, there's not much going on regarding the, um, you know, curbing the irregular migration through Turkey because people will just do it anyway and smugglers will just find a way anyhow. But there was also this other aspects of the statement, which are about financial aid and also resettlement, the prospect for resettlement. So... From our research, uh, we interviewed many families, for instance, who received this uh, cash transfer, which was primarily funded by Fritz, within the context of Turkey-EU statement of 2016. And this is called Emergency Social Safety Net, in other words, ESSN, for refugees in Turkey. What does it entail? So it entails a cash transfer, right, to families. And then it's not a big amount, right, when you think about it, it's around, because with the Changing Turkish lira, it's difficult to calculate the amount in euros, but I will say something around 10 to 15 euro, right, per family member. And that was sort of the major, one of the biggest cash transfer programs that has been ever implemented. It was uh, run together with the World Food Programme, Turkish Crescent, and it was a big administrative thing at the same time, covering over 1 million families. So the reach out was also quite high. So in that, in that context, we also interviewed a lot of Syrian and Afghan families mainly who were receiving the, this cash transfer. And for them, you know, the cash transfer was, of course, important. A lot of families will just say they pay the rent and then at least they can pay the rent. At least they can you know pay the bills with that. And then with the rest uh, of their livelihood uh, needs, then they can rely on the informal work that they're doing, right? And then family members are doing. So there was a huge difference that was made to them, but it was not something that they would really put like at the center of their livelihood, right? It was just something that, was, that helped them not to starve at the end of the day, but not something that will necessarily improve their quality of life. So it was very, very modest when you think about it, this type of cash aid, But there was still this impact that a lot of people will say, yeah, they can pay the rent and bills. Would they deceive them from eventually like moving on and so on? I would say no. Many people did not move on, right, because they have families, because they have small children and they don't want to risk the lives of their children. That was the main reason that they wouldn't do it. And the second of all, smugglers started to charge even bigger amounts because the passage is becoming riskier and costlier. So they didn't have the, the means, basically. So that's why they wouldn't just go and then stay, uh, not necessarily because there was cash aid available. And then regarding resettlement, a lot of people would wait for resettlement, will aspire to be resettled one day. But everybody is very much aware that resettlement is very rare. We are talking about some, you know, maybe 50,000 people who have been resettled so far, right, since the deal. And then it's it's very rare it's very selective, especially for families with some, you know, vulnerable family members, like disabilities or like some patients who, who just really need um, intensive care, like the cancer patients and so on. Or, yeah, some others who actually reveal a great potential, like the university degrees and so on. So they're already educated, so they can actually, uh, they will be like desired refugees. So the for common people, you know, majority of Syrians who are, not so much educated, who do not have the means, who are just trying to get getting by with, you know, several family members working in the informal uh, economy. Resettlement was not an option and they knew it was not an option. So there was not much of an effect also at that level either. It just,
0: it strikes me the ex- almost experimental nature of, of the statement, but also that in, in the context of Turkey being one of the world's biggest refugee receiving countries, that there are so many people for whom the the options that are put forward are not necessarily as realistic or as hopeful as, as one might might want. And I was thinking in terms of Turkish politics domestically, you have shown in, in, in your research that they're not necessarily portraying uh, migrants as a perceived threat, which we might expect or we have seen from North American and European, especially po- populist leaders. And my, my question is, how, how do you explain uh, this difference in rhetoric and discourse?
2: In our earlier research which was published 2019 we looked at the party debates right uh, party programs and the political leaders and then uh, deputies speeches in the parliament where we actually showed that yeah there was not the same level of uh, anti immigrant rhetoric in Turkey at least in the Turkish parliament at least in the party programs but then we also stopped our analysis 2018 saying that uh, things have started to change at that level uh, around 2019 with the local elections especially. And since then, maybe there was this parenthesis of COVID periods where people were actually preoccupied with other things and not necessarily the refugees. But what we might argue that there is an increasing anti-refugee, anti-immigrant attitudes in Turkey, right? This is, this is the main thing at this moment
0: what were your predictions or based on, on, your, on your research? What's sort of the, the trends in public opinion, but also the discourse after this research that you had done? So do you see migration becoming more politicized over the last years, which you just alluded to, but also as to why is it, is it taking shape this way or is it evolving in, in this trajectory?
2: Yeah, anti-immigration attitudes have been on the rise in Turkey. That's, that's a reality. And it has to do, of course, with internal uh, dynamics, Within Turkey, especially like economic crisis and then high inflation rates, rising cost of living, and then Turkish Syria going down, which created a lot of unease in, in common people's lives, and they are looking for somewhere to blame, and then refugees are becoming more like usual suspects, and that that might be one explanation because Syrians have been in high numbers in Turkey, living in our you know cities since 2015, right at least. But also there has been other narratives that have been circulated through social media in particular around these other groups of migrants. And here the target also shifted from families, let's say Syrian families, more like uh, single men, especially Afghans who are coming more so, this is the belief, who are coming in increasing numbers to Turkey, uh, especially after Taliban uh, seized power in, in Afghanistan. But also, for instance, like the Pakistanis who are also in transit through Turkey and coming to Turkey. And these groups of single men have become the new target now for anti-immigrant groups uh, with the premise that they are also posing a sexual threat to local women, which is, of course, to echo a lot the the, the discourse in Western Europe or elsewhere. In
0: light of this changing context, uh, what are some of the lessons learned from the EU-Turkey statement? And also, how do you predict EU-Turkey relations to evolve when it comes to migration?
2: Right, that's a very relevant question. So because it's it's not even entirely clear to me at the moment whether the deal, if you want to call it this way, is still on or not, right? Most of the funds are now uh, coming to an end. Most of the projects are finishing soon and there's this talks that, okay, more funding uh, should be made available because there's still need in Turkey. But it's not clear where these talks are going to. And also regarding the borders, it's still very, very much of a unclarity because Greek, what Greece is doing at the moment in the last few years is really um, increasingly pushing back, right? Increasing pushbacks of migrants, which is not respecting the international law. And what Turkey is doing is that there is this on the one hand, this whole rhetoric that we are in control of our borders with uh, high, high technology, high tech tools that we are using at the borders. We are monitoring the crossings more closely than ever. But at the same time, there is this perception that for those who would like to leave, Turkey is not necessarily doing much regarding, um, you know, stopping them. Or it can be quite also contingent on, on the current politics, right? maybe for some period of time, they will be more, much more assertive controlling the borders and some others not so much. So there is this huge unclarity, I think, whether the deal is still on or whether people are actually on the same page on how to implement the deal. And of course, these types of agreements are ugly in the sense that they really uh, reduce migrant lives to political negotiations. And they are really like the primary thing is here to really ensure in this case the European audience that things are in control, and then there is not so much accountability when it comes to rights of people on the way, right? Whether their human rights are respected or not, especially the right to asylum. And plus there is not so much accountability when it comes to what's happening in Turkey, right? And one of the major implications of this 2016 statement has been that Turkey has gone through an authoritarian turn, you know, after that. And main European countries were turning a blind eye. And most of the European uh, EU-produced reports, right, especially the one that is prepared by the Commission, like uh, on a yearly basis, was actually mentioning all these, you know, negative developments in Turkey, but was still not so critical because the Chapter 24, which is the chapter on security and cooperation, was really praising Turkey for doing a wonderful job in stopping migrants from crossing and then in in preventing further deaths, you know, let's say at the border. But that is sort of, I think, very worrisome development. So the way forward should be different from from what we have seen in the last five years. This is for sure. And it has a lot to do, not only like Turkey-EU relations in particular, but also in general, like how conflict situations are managed, right? There is a lot of talking when it comes to sharing responsibility or like reciprocity or accountability or dignity. But when it comes to practice, these things are easily forgotten. I think you just made a very persuasive point. Maybe we could
0: we could leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining me today, Aisha.
2: Thank you, Mariana.
1: It's really my pleasure to welcome Stefanos Levidis from Forensic Architecture. Thank you so much, Stefanos, for taking the time from your busy schedule to talk to us about your fascinating research on the EU-Turkey border.
3: Thank you for the invitation.
1: Without further ado, I will kick things off by asking you the quite obvious question. What exactly is Forensic Architecture? I am both interested in the Institute itself, but also in the specific methodology it puts forth in its case studies.
3: Forensic architecture is a multidisciplinary research team. We are based uh, out of Goldsmiths University in London. And we work with and on behalf of communities affected by state violence, corporate violence, environmental violence, and as I assume we will be discussing today, border violence. We deploy techniques of spatial and, and media analysis to reconstruct violent events through the trace these leave on the environment, the built environment and the natural environment. The evidence we produce is is presented in uh, citizens' tribunals, legal processes, courts, both local and international, as well as art galleries, museums, uh, media, social media. We employ a a variety of, of fora, as we call them, to socialize the evidence.
1: So that's really interesting, and I'd like to pick from where you left it and start scratching on the surface of the specific topic we have come here to explore today. What led forensic architecture to focus on the EU-Turkey border?
3: We have long been researching borders with a focus in Europe because this is where we are based. We have done a lot of work along with our sister agency, Forensic Oceanography, now called Border Forensics, in the central med and the deadly crossing there and after 2015 and what came to be called the refugee crisis or the long summer of migration by some more optimistically we diverted our gaze and directed it there and focused there because we believe it's a very important crossing more than a million people crossed in 2015-2016 Lots of people perish in the process, uh, it's an increasingly militarized and hostile border to cross, and we see human rights being violated on a daily basis still today, seven years after the so-called refugee crisis. In fact, if anything, it's, we believe it might be more crucial to operate there now, because things are being done in a more concealed manner, Humanitarian organizations are not allowed to operate on the ground, they're being criminalized, they're being persecuted, and we feel we have a duty to contest the narratives that are being created around migration in the, in on the Greek Turkish border and keep the authorities in check, seek accountability. Really, borders are a mirror of the society they enclose in a way. And European Union's borders in, in Greece and Turkey tell a very harrowing tale about the Europe that we're living in now. So we believe it's important to research them.
1: I think this brings us to the heart of the problem here because, as you said, in 2015-16, more than 80% of the 1 million people that entered the EU did so through the EU-Turkey border. And you seem to say that it has now become a premier space of violent deterrence, uh, given that at the same point we see the Ukraine crisis and the openness by which some states have received uh, refugees?
3: I think what became clear with the crisis in Ukraine, if it wasn't clear already, is that the European border is a heavily racialized border, right? It includes and excludes people differently according to, to the race and, and their ethnicity. There have been several steps in Coming to where we are today, the first and main one being the EU-Turkey deal, which uh, most people will be familiar by now, which was signed in, in March 2016 and effectively sealed the border, keeping people trapped in islands for long periods of time. And little by little since, the border has become more violent and more dangerous to cross. Uh, New fences were erected in the Evros, forests were cut down, uh, forcing people to cross either in more dangerous parts of the river, where the flow is deadlier and people perish more and more in the river, or again, take the Aegean route, which is also sealed nowadays, as we see with with extensive pushbacks that are taking place, uh, or driftbacks, as we call them, precisely because people are being left to drift back to Turkey onto uh, life rafts or inflatable boats with uh, their engines uh, decap- uh, incapacitated. So it's a very dangerous zone and it's a zone that has been constructed in a way that evidence cannot leak out of it. It's very difficult for human rights organizations to access the ground precisely also compounded by the you know the, the tensions between Greece and Turkey. Anything that happens there is a matter of national security both in the Evros with a buffer zone skirting the border and the river itself. You never really get to see the river or the border, much less access it. And the same applies to parts of the Aegean Sea, with uninhabited islets hosting uh, military installations and people who want to understand what's happening there uh, facing persecution more and more.
1: So you raised many interesting points here, and I would like to unpack them one by one, starting perhaps by pushbacks. Uh, I would like to dig deeper into that concept and practice. It comes up very regularly recently, whether it concerns the EU-Turkey border, but also the US-Mexico border, the France-UK border. Can you tell us more about what are pushbacks and how widespread is the phenomenon?
3: A pushback means people being forcibly removed from the territory they are trying to enter, uh, in our case Greece, from Turkey. So they are pushed back to Turkey from the Greek territory without being granted the opportunity to apply for asylum, to apply for international protection, without having their case heard before an official institution and without their vulnerability being assessed at all which is a a right granted to people regardless of ethnicity by a number of international conventions including the Geneva Convention and the European Convention for Human Rights in the Greek case. They are an extremely violent practice precisely because they happen outside, far from public view. It's an illegal practice, so it's not something that's exercised in an ordinary, organized manner. In speaking about the the Evros, which we have researched extensively, People who cross the river are intercepted, are being taken to one of the official border guard stations or unofficial warehouses or buildings that act as detention centers, as, as holding sites. They are detained, arbitrarily detained there for hours on end before they're loaded onto trucks and taken to the river, beaten, have their possessions uh, stolen. Their phones confiscated, of course, so, th- so uh, information cannot leak outside of, of the border zone, and are then driven to the Turkish banks of the river. In fact, recently we see a shift in this practice, and this is happening after March 2020, where people are are either being left in islands, mid-river, so not taken to the Turkish banks of the river themselves, but uh, taken to sandbanks or islands or islets that certain periods of the year uh, exist in the Evros, or third country nationals uh, driving the boats to the Turkish uh, banks, namely people from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, from Iran, who describe themselves as uh, slaves, and this is the terminology that they use, and they call themselves slaves, and we we have heard that from from refugees whom we have spoken to, who have been pushed back in the Evros, describe themselves as such. Because they themselves had been arrested in the Evros at some point and they had been offered a choice either be pushed back or stay in a cell in the border guard station for two or three months and assist in pushbacks, do this dirty work of driving the people across, after which they would be permitted to stay in Greece. So it's a modern day kind of enslavement that uh, we see happening in the European borders. And of course, very few people endure only one pushback.
1: I think this is a crucial point. We often think of border crossing as a, this singular moment in time when a migrant traverses a geographical line that defines two distinct state territories, but your research seems to suggest otherwise. But what I have found extremely fascinating in your work is how vividly it exemplifies the expansion of the border, not only in time, but also in space. Crossing the EU-Turkey land border in Everest, for example, may trigger a series of actions that will lead an asylum seeker back to the border of Syria, often against their own will. Can you give us some examples from your research where you have identified this expansive nature of the border?
3: It's a, it's a very good point. As I mentioned, almost everybody we have talked to, their pushbacks were durational. Thinking of Parvin, a woman from Iran with whom we... We collaborated to analyze the evidence that she gathered uh, during her pushbacks. She was trying to cross into Greece for six months. And she was pushed back five times, four times in the river and one time in the sea. She was forced to hide in several locations. She was forced to camp in the Everest to endure the cold. And during all these pushbacks, she was also forced to hide her identity because Turkey had deemed that she should be pushed back or rather returned to Iran, from where she had fled for a very good reason. Fadi is another person with whom we conducted a a lengthy interview a couple of years ago. He is an asylum seeker from, an asylum holder rather, from Syria, who had crossed the Greek border in 2015, had arrived to Germany while the Balkan corridor was still open, and he had obtained an asylum status in Germany. So he flew to Greece. He traveled legally from Munich to Thessaloniki, took the bus to the Evros prefecture to look for his missing brother, who is still missing. He vanished in the river, most likely. And while in the Evros, he was arrested, racially profiled, his documents were confiscated, was pushed back, and he tried to get his asylum recognized in the German embassy in Istanbul to no avail, which forced him to cross 14 more times and be pushed back 14 more times Eventually, he made it to Greece. He spent two years in hiding in Greece before having his asylum reinstated and traveling legally again three years after his first pushback to Germany. So his pushback lasted for three years, essentially traumatizing him further and further. And of course, every time a person is forced to cross the river, they are putting themselves in further danger in this deadly terrain, a terrain which I should say is designed to be deadly, is is designed to act as a weapon, as a deterrent, as a vector of harm as a space that kills. Kuzi, another person, a Turkish man fleeing the Erdogan regime, was pushed back six times in May 2019, in the space of nine days. So Kuzi was swimming across the river only to be arrested and pushed back immediately again. And during these nine days, he didn't sleep, he didn't eat, he was exposed to the cold, he was wet. And his testimony really reveals the ways in which the landscape, the riverine landscape of the Everest can become a weapon can become a trap within which people die of hypothermia, of, of exhaustion. Luckily, Kiusi survived and he was able to tell his story in Greece a year later. Ayesha Erdogan is another case. A Turkish teacher who was pushed back, was held in Neo border guard station, was pushed back, and was arrested by a Turkish patrol, and still is in Gebze prison outside Istanbul. So, there we're talking about a clear case of refoulement, right? Returning a person to a country where their safety is not guaranteed, and the same was true of QZ. These are only a few examples of, of many, of course.
1: So you mentioned earlier that this is a buffer zone that's quite deliberately taken out of sight, and you gather all these testimonies. I was wondering if you could tell me more about how you gain access to the information and evidence you deploy in your investigations. And who are these people that are willing to provide this information?
3: Indeed the Greek-Turkish border and for that matter many borders internationally are designed as obscure spaces spaces where civilian oversight is not possible, is foreclosed. And through our work during these past four or five years we have developed several methodologies to circumvent these restrictions. Uh, With each case we would deploy a different methodology because the type of evidence we receive would be different. We have worked with uh, material sent by people crossing via WhatsApp to relatives of theirs, for example, photographs, selfies, videos, GPS locations, which we then geolocated, uh, chronolocated, anchored in time and space, and mapped out in the space of the Everest to prove, and this is the case of Ayshe Doğan, to which I referred earlier, To prove that the group had followed the trajectory from Turkey to Greece, was held inside a specific border guard station and was then pushed back to Turkey, where they are still. So this Turkey-Greece-Turkey trajectory was crucial uh, in that case. In other uh, cases, we have worked with material gathered by cameras hidden in trees, for example, which are meant to be used for border surveillance purposes, and somehow arrived at the hands of collaborators of ours, journalists, and were sent to us for verification and analysis. There, we really wanted to prove that where this was filmed was indeed in the Evros in a specific location. It was showing a pushback occur from the Greek banks to the Turkish uh, shores of the river, and we really could corroborate that what we are seeing is Greek agents uh, pushing people back to Turkey in other cases we weren't as fortunate and this is more often than not the case we had no material to work with other than people's own testimony people's own recollection of the of the events their trauma and the violence they had endured so we worked with them working with um, a methodology that we have we have developed in the past called uh, situated testimony where we sit with witnesses for several hours a day with each witness more or less Uh, We model with them, with their help, the environments in three dimensions, indeed with digital architectural software, the environments and buildings where they have endured border violence, the buildings where they have been held, the vehicles in which they were transported, the river environments where they were pushed back from the weather conditions at the time. Uh, And indeed, we found that in most cases, they were able to recall with a high degree of precision exactly where they had been taken we were able to identify specific uh, holding sites such as Poros Border Guard Station and Tijero Border Guard Station, where people were t- were, we talked to were held. And really the entire scale and multimodal function of a pushback really begins to emerge. Again, how it's not only the beatings and uh, the detention, but also the river landscape playing an incredibly important role. The cold, the fog, the mud, the thorns, the flow of the river, the islands really begins to emerge. And lastly, in the case of, of Parvin, which is the latest case that we published a couple of months ago, we had the opportunity to work with extensive evidentiary material that she had gathered because she was able to hold on to her phone for her first two pushbacks. So uh, we have several GPS locations, several videos, several videos from inside the cells in Neohymonia and in Border Guard Station. So really, Parvin's case comes to corroborate the previous ones, with extensive material overlapping with the testimonies of people we had talked to previously, who hadn't been able to hold on to their phones and produce visual evidence.
1: I also assume that these people have already ensured some safety or an asylum or a situation of security that they are able to share this information, right? Because I would assume that another problem would be to actually overcome the fear of being Punished, perhaps, for all this information. Is that true?
3: This is a valid point. It's not always the case. We have talked to people and produced crucial evidence that we were not able to use. We talked to a family of of women from Afghanistan who eventually decided against publishing their case, even though they had a very clear recollection of the the events, precisely because they were stuck in a Greek island and they didn't feel safe having their story uh, out there. Kuzi, the Turkish man I referred to earlier, used a pseudonym because he's still in Greece. Uh, His face is never shown in the footage. Uh, We had to blur the faces of translators that we collaborated with who feared persecution from the Greek authorities, people who were uh, living Greece entirely legally uh, and had been living, in fact for several years, but still they didn't feel safe being implicated in this process. Greek nationals who helped us requested to be anonymized in the credits. But indeed, most of the people we talked to were in a safe location. Parvin talked to us from Germany, even though her asylum in Germany is not guaranteed. Fadi talked to us in Greece, but we published his case only after he had arrived in Germany. And Aisha Erdogan was in the exact opposite of a safe place, actually, but she had little to lose. She was in a Turkish cell, so she was determined to get her story out there, heard, and seek accountability. What we find is that people are extremely angry at the European and the Greek authorities for what has happened to them. And they want to, to go after them. They want to, to claim their rights, to exercise their rights. They are not victims. They are not silent people who will endure what the Greek state has in store for them and simply keep their mouth shut. They are um, powerful people with, an, with agency. And through our work, we try to foreground this agency and help them simply get their story out and, and protect their testimony.
1: That's extremely important. Besides the Greek state, you mentioned also the European authorities. And I wanted to ask you, did your research reveal any involvement of Frontex at the EU-Turkey border situation?
3: We have found evidence of non-Greek-speaking personnel being involved in pushbacks. We haven't been able to pinpoint to to a specific Frontex uh, units or anything like that, but several witnesses, namely Fadi and Parvin, have described being escorted to the river to be pushed back by agents speaking German, English, French, languages that is not Greek. So it begs the question, who speaks German at the Greek border? I guess a possible explanation would be Frontex operatives or some other kind of European operatives. At the very least, Frontex knows what is happening there. They they have a, a, a very dense uh, surveillance apparatus precisely to see people crossing the border. How, so how, when pushbacks are so widespread and systematic, how is it possible that Frontex does not know that they are taking place? And what does this mean for the legitimacy of Frontex's operations on the Greek-Turkish borders?
1: I would like to ask a final question on an event you mentioned. On the 27th of February 2020, the Turkish government uh, opened its borders with Greece in an attempt to exert political pressure on the EU over Syria. We know that thousands of migrants and refugees were channeled to a single point on the land border between Greece and Turkey, and forensic architecture was involved in a high profile investigation at that time. Can you tell me a bit more about your research and its findings?
3: Yes, the the March 2020 events have been pivotal, also very much informing the way both the Everest and the Aegean border work still to this day. We worked on the February-March events uh, in three of our cases, in fact. The first one being Parvin's case. Parvin was one of the very first people who arrived at the border fence on the 27th of February 2020, trying to cross, not knowing that she would be met with such an extensive uh, army and police force. And she captured these events firsthand with her phone. So we have extensive material showing what happened there at the fence on that day. A couple of days later, on the 2nd of March, Mohammed al-Arab, a young man from Syria, was shot dead at the river Delta. We uh, worked with material sourced from the internet, but also from material we gathered from people who were present on the scene to corroborate the location where Muhammad was, uh, was killed, a Turkish pocket of land on the Greek side of the river, however, with no way for Turkish operatives to, to reach there other than crossing the river itself. And we came to the conclusion that Muhammad Al Arab was killed it's extremely likely that Muhammad al-Arab was killed by bullets coming from the Greek side of the river where we see several Greek soldiers being stationed guarding the border. So we know for a fact that there was a casualty there. We know exactly where it happened. We know there were no Turkish agents or soldiers within firing range and we know that there were Greek soldiers right across from where Muhammad al-Arab was shot. This is one of the investigations that we published. Of course, it was met with... a with a rebuttal from the Greek authorities, uh, throwing fake news accusations our side. But then a couple of days later, on the 4th of March, another person, Mohammed Gulzar from Pakistan, was killed on the fence, on the border fence in in Kastanias pazarkule We collaborated with uh, other organizations, with Bellingcat, with Der Spiegel and with Lighthouse Reports, to uh, conduct open source investigation and gather as many videos of the, of the scene as possible because that was a site that was populated by a lot of people at the time, right? It was uh, almost like a conflict zone where a single event happens and you have hundreds of videos capturing it. And indeed, we were able to gather uh, seven hours of footage from that morning. Uh, we analyzed that footage and we deemed that Mohammad Gulzar was killed and six more people were injured by bullets bullets of the same caliber as the weapons used by the Greek soldiers that were at the fence that day. And again, there is no Turkish uniformed soldier by the fence where Mohamed Guzar was killed. And even if there were undercover agents, the weapons that carry this type of bullets would be too big for us not to see in the footage, because there's extensive footage. We also have a group of Greek soldiers firing live rounds very close to where Mohammed Gulzar was killed. So again, we're able to, to determine that it's highly likely that Mohammed Gulzar was killed by, by Greek uh, soldiers and that he was killed by live fire coming from the Greek side of the fence. So we conducted sound analysis on gunshots that we we hear in, in the footage that we gathered and we're uh, 100% certain that there was live fire used both when uh, Mohammed Al-Arab was killed and when Mohammed Kuzar was killed.
1: These are really troubling findings and I would just like to start wrapping up by asking you if you see any potential for accountability and the impact that this research and the testimonies that people bravely give to you for any responsibility to be taken.
3: Of course we do. Um, I mean, we have to be... Optimistic while remaining pragmatist. We have submitted all these cases that I discussed today with you in several fora, both within Greece, internationally, to the European Court of Human Rights, to the United Nations uh, Human Rights Committee, with partners such as the ECHR, the Global Legal Action Network, uh, Human Rights 360, the Greek Council for Refugees, and we'll continue to do so. We will continue to challenge the narratives that come out of border zones and support the testimony of people crossing because we believe it's, it's one of the ways to, to ensure that people cross, are able to cross the border with dignity. Uh, it's part of a larger struggle, that this is why I, I say it's one of the ways. Uh, there's uh, several solidarity initiatives here in Greece that do incredible work, both in Athens and in the islands, less so in the Everest region, unfortunately. And of course, there's the agency of border crosses themselves, migrants and asylum seekers that should not be uh, overlooked.
1: I think on that note, we can end our discussion. Thank you so much for all your brilliant insights and for this extremely important work that you're doing. So thank you so much and have a good afternoon.
3: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me again.
0: So that's it for this episode. We hope you have enjoyed it. And if you're interested in some of the themes that were mentioned in both of the interviews, I believe we have some really relevant content on the Chatham House website from some recent research outputs. Isn't that right,
1: Antonia? Absolutely. Our colleagues Adna Valianato and Emily Venturi have written on uh, how Ukraine has exposed Europe's double standards for refugees, a topic we touched uh, upon with Stefano's in our interview. But also there's been work on externalization, a theme that has come up recently again with uh, UK government's plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda to have their asylum applications processed. So I think we can link to this. Absolutely. We can have
0: uh, the article linked in the show notes if you're interested in, in reading more. And to the second point that you're raising there about the the ongoing conversations about the Rwanda plan deal. Again, terminology and certain we could have a whole episode about that. And if it is a topic of interest, then please let us know, reach out or through our social media channels, and we'll be definitely sure to to cover it in a, in a future episode. Lastly, if you've enjoyed this episode and you enjoy your content, please consider leaving us a review or rating us on your podcast platform. This really helps other listeners find and interact with our content. So that's it for me. Thank you once again to my amazing uh, co-host and I for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed that.